Uh, welcome, everyone, to the second Sunday of Lent. Um, and I do think we've got a few more chairs on the far edges uh, over here that we might be able to get people uh, seats. Have you ever noticed how um, there are certain kinds of people who, as hard as they try, they just can't keep a secret? Some time ago, I had arranged for Allie to have a surprise massage at the spa. And um, I was so excited about this plan that I, I wanted to tell somebody. So I told our daughter, who was four at the time, call your Jane. And I said to her, I said, what I'm sharing with you now, uh, you cannot tell your mom. CJ, are you going to tell your mom? And she said, no. Uh, but then she got so excited because she saw how excited I was. And so when mom came home from work at the end of the day, she said, mommy, daddy has a surprise for you. And Allie said, ooh, what is it? And Collier Jane said, I can't tell you what it is because it's a secret, but it's a massage. <laughs> right? Some people, they just can't keep a secret. And I read once how there is something of that in the unfolding of the Christmas story. God had this incredible plan to send his own son to be the savior of the world, but he chose such an obscure path. It's like the world was expecting a certain kind of savior, a Messiah king who was going to come in, in, in power and glory and military might, but Jesus came as a different kind of savior, one who suffered and served and poured out his life, and so he had to come in secret, which, by the way, you see this playing out in Jesus' ministry. You ever notice how when Jesus heals someone, um, he will often say to the person he's just healed, or he'll often say to the crowd, he'll say, don't tell anybody what I've just done. Don't tell anyone that you've seen this miracle. And you're like, why? Why keep it a secret? Why not announce to the whole world? And so there's almost this sense that Jesus knows it's got to stay secret until the time is right for everyone to know. It's as if God had to send his son as a kind of secret because nobody would have believed it when he came. Why? Because it was so difficult and so different than what people were expecting in a savior. But there are these moments along the way in the Christmas story that almost make you begin to wonder, like if God was so excited about this, our heavenly father, it's like he had to tell somebody. So he tells Mary and Joseph, but then he's still so excited that he has to tell somebody else. And so he tells the shepherds and maybe the angels in heaven are, are starting to think, okay, God, you can tell the shepherds, you told Mary and Joseph, but the, the, the whole point, at some point, the secret's going to get out. And so you got to kind of keep it chill, God. So God sends an angel to announce this to the shepherds who says, good news of great joy. But then what happens next? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. It's like God gets so excited and he says to the angels, y'all, everybody go down there and let those shepherds know what is about to happen. It's as if in the heart of God there is almost a, a childlike joy that is so full of anticipation and so full of love that he can't keep it to himself. He can't keep a secret. Somebody's got to know. And of course, God's great heart is that everyone would come to know. And so these Sundays leading through Advent, we're looking at these moments in the Christmas story, four times when an angel is sent by God to share the secret. And the angel always says these words, fear not, do not be afraid. Last week, we looked at Elizabeth and Zechariah, uh, who were never able to start a family 
They had prayed and prayed and prayed for years, only to be disappointed every 28 days. Then one day the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah inside the temple, and he says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear a son. And so we talked about God's unexpected word of hope piercing the silence. Now, part of this Advent series is we're taking a closer look at this symbol that has really been uh, part of the church's journey through Advent for many years, the Advent wreath. And you'll notice there are four candles around the outside. Big candle in the middle represents anybody? Okay, at 9.30, they were really slow on the uptake for that. So just, yes, the answer is Jesus. Middle candle's Jesus because he's the reason for the season, although you're the reason for the season because he chose to come this season because he loves you. But we'll talk about that another time. But these four candles around the outside represent the four Sundays of Advent and the four, these longings of every human heart. So just a little audience participation here. And if you were here last week, you're going to have a serious leg up on this. But a quick Advent quiz. There are four Sundays in Advent. Each one has a theme. Anybody remember the order of these four themes? Let's try to do this out loud together. And we're just all going to say it at once so that... People may not, we've got some, we've got hands in the back that we're so excited about. So real loud, we'll just do it, everybody together, the four themes of Advent in order. Are you ready? Hope, peace, joy, and love. There we go. Okay, so some of you remembered Highland Park, Jay Lee, like that's the way to, well done. If, if you could all just pay attention the way that they're paying attention back there. So the theme of this second Sunday is peace. Now, before we dive into this passage, because I know some of you, and I know you're always paying attention and holding me accountable to this kind of stuff, and so we're going to walk through this text, and some of you, as we're reading this, might say, wait a second, the word peace isn't anywhere in this text. In fact, some of you, as we read this, you're going to be like, okay, the announcement to a virgin that they're going to have a baby, um, that's like the opposite of peace, So here's the driving theme of today's message, just to kind of lay this out from the very beginning. Peace came to Mary, and peace came through Mary, and peace is a person, and his name is Jesus. Peace, first of all, comes to Mary as the angel announces over her, do not be afraid, you do not need to fear, you have found favor with God. And then peace comes through Mary as a Savior is born into the world, and that peace comes as a person, not as an idea, not as a worldview, not as a philosophy, not as a circumstance, and not as the absence of conflict or suffering. Peace comes to us as a person, and his name is Jesus. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26, here's what we read. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kind kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now, I want to pause here around Mary's question as she absorbs what the angel has just announced. How? How can this be? I still remember the first time I got the how question from our three-year-old twins. Uh, Allie was pregnant. My wife was pregnant with our third child at the time. And one day, Annie, in her wonderful curiosity, asked the question, Daddy, how did the baby get into mommy's tummy? And I said, well, God put it there. And Annie sort of reflected on that for a moment, and you could just tell that her mind was being stretched existentially. And then she asked the follow-up question, well, how did God put it there? And I said, well, you, you know, your mommy's a nurse practitioner, and I'm just a preacher, so you ought to ask her. <laughs> how can this be, Mary asks, since I'm a virgin? And with this question, Mary, the one who experiences the miracle of the, of the incarnation, Mary is the miracle's first skeptic. The second skeptic, as you might imagine, is Joseph, her fiancé. And we're going to look at that story in a couple weeks. You know, it's interesting, and I'd never seen this before, but three times in this text, the writer Luke refers to Mary as the virgin. Luke, who is by trade a physician, a scientist, a doctor, he is quite intentional about saying over and over again, just in case you forget, this was going to be a miracle, which sort of begs the question, do you think it really happened? Like a baby born of a virgin, like really? Because a lot of people in our day and in our culture don't think it happened. Uh, even a few centuries ago, one of the founders of our nation, Thomas Jefferson, said this, and I think we have this, the day will come. When the mystical generation or conception of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable, the fairy tale of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Okay, Thomas Jefferson believed that Jesus was a good model of morality and leadership, but sadly, all these fairy tales had sort of intertwined themselves into the good stuff, and it would be best for all of us just to kind of grow up and finally stop believing in the fairy tales. In fact, Thomas Jefferson actually wrote a version of the Gospels where he took all the miracles, anything, the virgin birth, all the Jesus miracles, the resurrection, anything miraculous was taken out. And it was a pretty short Gospel. When I was in college, uh, there was this wave of scholars and writers who were trying to find, quote-unquote, the real Jesus and by that, they meant the one who wasn't born of a virgin, didn't claim to be God, didn't rise from the grave. Like, that's the Jesus we needed to find. And so here's just one example. Um, some of you may not be interested in this, but this is a guy who summed up uh, his work, his scholarship, in the following way. Here's what he writes. Jesus' wretched tomb was full. In other words, the resurrection was a myth, and his manger was empty. In other words... The, the whole Bethlehem story with the angels and shepherds and all of that and the wise men, it's just all fake news. That may be said to be the overall conclusion of my work, said the late Gerd Lundmann, which ranks up there as like the best German theologian names in history, if you ask me. Tomb is full, manger's empty. 
which I get it. I mean, it's, it's pretty unbelievable as a story, unless you believe in miracles. Um, more recently, I'll one more. There was a certain denomination, and I'm not going to tell you the name of the denomination. I'm going to keep that a secret. But this church used to be connected to it. And there was an official in this denomination who released a statement in response to a question about the truth of the virgin birth. And here's what he said, and I quote, There is a diversity of opinion on this issue, but there remains a diversity of opinion over whether there should be a diversity of opinion. Isn't that the kind of clarity we need in our day? Yes. Like, I can latch onto that. I'm going to use that sometime. And yet, every time we baptize a child here, we say together these centuries-old words of the Apostles' Creed as if we mean them to be true. Born of a virgin Mary. Really? Like, do we really believe that? Yeah. I think a word of caution is helpful here, lest we make the mistake that so many have made since the Enlightenment. And it's when we assume that these first century people, 2,000 years ago, they were kind of primitive. Like they weren't as smart as us, they were superstitious, and so they really had no trouble with things like miracles or virgin birth. They just accepted those things. And that is so, it's just not true. It's intellectual hubris, actually. The incarnation, the virgin birth was as unbelievable for Mary and Joseph as it is for many of us today. They knew enough about how babies were made to know that Mary wasn't ready to have a baby. I mean, even with Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, and we looked at her story last week, how she gets pregnant in her 60s. As unlikely as that was, it was still more believable. It was a stretch, but believable because it was a miracle that involved, you know, the conventional way of, that people have a baby, but not with Mary. What happened to Mary was beyond the realm of human possibility. And so she asks, how can this be? Well, the angel goes on to answer her question, but the way he responds, and I'm grateful to Daryl Johnson for this, the way the angel responds, he answers the how with a who. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the who. Now, this mention right here of the Spirit of God and this language of the power of the Most High overshadowing you, hovering over any faithful Jewish listener who had been steeped in the story of the Old Testament, of their scriptures, would immediately be taken back to the opening moments of creation in Genesis, where the Spirit hovers over the void of nothingness, and out of that void, the Spirit brings into, into being the creation of the world. So with Christmas, the same Spirit would now overshadow the void of the virgin's womb, and out of that void would bring into being the new creation, the second Adam. Which, if you think about it, is why the scientific mind simply cannot, in the end, make sense of this miracle. Because it's never happened before. We're dealing with something brand new. Unprecedented. I said it. Remember the word that has been canceled after 2020 and 2021? Well, in the scientific world, you need a precedent to understand, to make sense of something. Which in the virgin birth, you just don't have. The who, the how, is a who. 
The Holy Spirit will create this life in you, the angel says to Mary, for nothing, verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Mary, your understanding of what is possible is about to change, for nothing will be impossible with God. And I bet there are some people in the room today who need to hear those words. Nothing will be impossible with God. Well, how does Mary respond to all this? Verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be according to your word. Three times in, the, in Luke's Christmas story, Mary identifies herself as a servant. It's, this is the one title that she chooses for herself. I'm a servant. And it makes you kind of wonder when you think about her son. Years later, he would say things like, I came not to be served, but to serve. And one night, he kneels down and he wraps a towel around his waist and he washes feet like a servant. Where do you think, like, where do you think he learned that? Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. And then these just stirring courageous words, may it be according to your word. By the way, do you know what that is? That's peace. It's not serenity. It's not the absence of conflict or fear or suffering, and it is certainly not comfort. May it be according to your word. God, my life is in your hands. I'm not in charge. I surrender outcomes to you. May it be, and I'm living surrendered to you and in your will. It might not be the safest place to be, but it's the best place to be. That's peace. That's shalom. God, you are now sovereign over all things. That includes my life, my family, come what may, and I will trust the whole way in your promises because you're the promise maker, and I'm going to live in your presence and in your word for me. That's peace. Just think about the courage in that moment for her to be able to say those words, may it be, and what must have been running through her mind as she processed this. You know, this is not what Joseph and I kind of dreamed about on our second date when we were talking about our future together and where we might get engaged and where we'd get married, I mean, can we get the sanctuary at Highland Park Prez? I hear it's like booked a year and a half in advance. And then all the fun that we would have before we got into the kids' section of life and the trips we might take and where we might go, but may it be according to your word. And then it starts to get real as she starts thinking about the gossip and the whispers and the insults when people see the baby bump before the wedding. And all that she's going to face in her small town, but may it be according to your word. And all the suffering and all the pain that we may have to endure as a family because of the child that God has given to us that's growing in my womb, but may it be according to your word. And what this child will face when he grows up in the cloud of a problem pregnancy and what people might say about him and behind his back and how they may treat him and I don't get to control them, but may it be according to your word. Most scholars think that Mary would have been somewhere between 13 and 17 years old when she was engaged to Joseph. And we'll just go with 17 to make this a little more palatable. <laughs> but think about, think about the unexpected turn and story now of her life. Giving birth to a child at 17. Raising that child as a teenager before she's 25. She's got an eight-year-old boy 
running off when they're not looking and they end up finding him in the temple and they're like, Jesus, you can't do that. We were worried. Don't, no more running away. And he says, no, I had to be about my father's business. And they're like, okay, well, just this once, but no more using the, my father's business card as long as you're in this house, right? You thought your nine-year-old was a know-it-all. They are literally raising the alpha and omega. <laughs> you keep going. Things begin to quiet down for a season in their life, a little bit of smooth, you know, travel, all this stuff uh, for the next 20 years or so. But then at the age of 30, Jesus begins his public ministry and Mary watches as the crowds begin to swell and he is followed everywhere like a celebrity. One day they're off at a wedding and the parents of the bride, the host, run out of wine, which I've been to a few weddings lately. That's not a great scenario. And, but Mary's like, I, I got this. Hey, just go find my son and he'll take care of everything. And he turns water into wine. Then at the age of 50, at the age of 50, Mary watches as her son is welcomed into the holy city of Jerusalem like a king. And maybe there's a moment in which she remembers back all those years ago to a promise and what the angel told her, that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And she's thinking, yes, this is it. This is the moment. His moment has arrived. But then overnight, the crowds turn on her son and she watches as he is arrested and beaten and mocked and spit on. And then Mary watches as her son is killed on that Roman cross. It is said that there is no pain in life so unbearable as that of a parent losing her child. And there at the foot of that cross was a mom who suffers with her son. But see, we know we know that even in that moment of pitch black darkness, when things couldn't get any worse, even then, God was fulfilling his promise. And on the third day, he would lift up his son because with God, nothing is impossible. Now, before we come to this table to celebrate and give thanks and receive his grace poured out for us on the cross, as we've mentioned, today is Confirmation Sunday. And I, in preparation for this, I, I just love how this lined up for us to be handling this text and to be talking about Mary on Confirmation Sunday. You know, from time to time, I will meet with somebody who will come in to ask me, often it's a parent, and they'll ask me the question, is confirmation really a good thing? Like, is it really okay to assume that every seventh grader in our church will come to faith in Jesus and become a disciple at the same time in the same way? Isn't that kind of forced or pressured? Are we telling these students that they can show up to a bunch of classes that makes them like a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? And I want you to know that we are grateful for questions like that and we wrestle with that kind of stuff. And in recent years, we have shifted our strategy with confirmation so that now every student who makes this confirmation journey has room to grapple with what they believe about Jesus and the Bible and the virgin birth and the resurrection, and they have the freedom to say, you know, I'm not ready for this. I can't yet with integrity say that I am ready to go all in believing and trusting and following Jesus. I'm not there yet. My heart isn't there yet. And we want to make room for that, which is why we don't assume that every seventh grade confirmation student is ready to take seriously these vows 
of becoming a covenant partner of this church. Because if we don't allow these young women and these young men to intentionally choose what they believe, and they just go through some religious motions because we've told them that's what you're supposed to do, you're of age, or that's because your grandma did the same thing, and, and you just need to stand up on the stage and become a member. But then one day, they're going to find themselves in the lecture hall as a freshman, or they're going to face real adversity and real loss and real pain, maybe for the first time in their life, and there may be a moment when they're like, I don't know if I believe this. I mean, I was told what to believe, but I didn't choose it, and I didn't embrace it wholeheartedly, and we see the danger in that. So the way that we have shaped this months-long discipleship journey is that when each student is ready to make that decision, we want them to be able to own it and to say it publicly in front of the church and for everybody to know, yes, I want everyone to know, I want my church to know, I have decided to follow Jesus as his disciple. And, that, and when that happens, we are going to celebrate and we're going to rejoice in what God's doing in their life. And in a world where our kids are told in a thousand ways, life is about achievement, it's about success, it's about getting into the right school or getting the right job, when they're ready to say, may it be Jesus according to your word. My life is now your life and I'm surrendering to your plans, not mine, not my parents, not what some adult says is best for me. May it be according to your word, God. That's our hope for these confirmation students. And so with that, my prayer and my longing for these young men and for these young women, and really this is my hope for every one of us who would link arms with them as well, is this. May you abound in courage, the resilient courage of Mary, the first disciple, the one who in the face of suffering and shame said, may it be according to your word. And may the peace of God come to you and then by the gift of the Holy Spirit and then flow through you as you live out the peace-making way of Jesus in the world. May you hold on to the promise spoken over Mary, a promise your heavenly Father speaks over you, that no word from God will ever fail, ever, in your life. Would God perform mighty deeds in your life and extend his mercy through you from generation to generation? For blessed are you when God fulfills his promises to you. So Jesus, that's our prayer. Even as we come to this table. And we thank you that what you did on the cross, you did for us. And I pray that we would receive your grace and taste of the peace and the hope and the love and the joy that you offer to us, even as we receive common bread and common drink and juice and cup today. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for this chance to receive you once again. Amen.